This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity Mates, episode 10. Welcome, mates. A podcast made by nobodies for everybody. As always, we try and break down the world of investing to make it easier for you guys. And uh, we're pretty happy to have made it to episode 10. It's double digits for us. And I'm here today with my equity mate, Ren. Hey, Bryce. Glad to be back. (laughs) Yes, as always. So today we have another guest as part of our interview series with expert investors. We have had a great time talking with Sarah Regalhuth, who is the CEO of a financial advisory called Wealth Enhancers. Sarah is a serial entrepreneur and investor in startups, having founded eight companies alongside her husband, Finn. Following several successful exits, she's currently the CEO of Wealth Enhancers, which is a Gen Y financial advisory firm, and Grow My Team, which is a global recruitment company. And she also sits on the board of her other companies, We Love Numbers and League of Extraordinary Women. She's personally fueled by a passion for community, gender equality, and living life on one's own terms. So we had a great time talking with her, and we think you guys are going to get a lot out of this interview because we don't just specifically talk about stocks. We talk about ways in which you can get ahead with your finances and work towards um, sort of financial freedom and doing what you want in your life. So um, there's something in there for everybody. And uh, yeah, she was she was great to talk to. So we hope you enjoy. But before we kick into that, I'm going to throw across to our news guru, Ren, <laughs> because he has a few updates for us. Uh, so as always, we don't want to talk about the news more generally. We're going to sort of focus on what's happening in the investing world, Uh, and try and make it accessible for everyone out there. So first of all, uh, what we've seen recently, very recently, is that Chinese investors are leaving the Melbourne apartment market. Okay, so what's that mean? Yeah, now Melbourne apartment market, that's a strange one to look at, you might think. But in many ways, it's a canary in the coal mine for the rest of the property market in Australia. Because what we saw in Melbourne over the last couple of years was a massive build-up in new apartments. uh, And there was a lot of foreign investment in it. But now what we're seeing is a massive pullback from especially Chinese investors and many of them are forfeiting the deposits that they've already put down on apartments that they bought off the plan. Wow. Is there a reason for that? There are a number of reasons. There's some issues with capital controls in China. So the Chinese government is cracking down on uh, Chinese people sending their money overseas and investing overseas. Probably the main issue is just the amount of apartments. So because so many were built, there was just, you know, a huge explosion of demand and uh, people really tried to capitalize on that. Now there's an oversupply and the market's starting to wake up to that a little bit. So what does uh, an oversupply necessarily mean for the market down there then? Well, it means that, you know, as supply grows and if demand doesn't grow with it, then the price will fall. So for all those people listening in Melbourne who are struggling to get into the property market, apartments may be getting cheaper in the short to medium term. Uh, some of the developers that are... Because they're still building apartments because it's yeah. you know, if demand falls away, it's tough to stop building the apartment if it's already half built or you know the plans are already in place. 
So they expect 5,000 new apartments to be completed uh, in the next little while. Uh, and with the softening of demand, it'll be interesting to see what that does for property prices. Whether yeah, that definitely. will flow through to the rest of Australia, uh, it remains to be seen. But it is something that all the aspiring first home buyers out there maybe can take solace in, but definitely can uh, take an interest in. Yeah, nice. So it sounds like a watch this space if people are after a bit of a bargain yeah, definitely. In, in, in apartments. Nice. What's, what else have we got? So the second one, not really domestically focused in Australia, but something that okay. I, I'm quite interested in is yeah. that OPEC, which is basically a cartel of oil producing countries. Okay. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, a lot of the uh, Arab Gulf states. What they do, they've essentially formed a, a group and they agree on how much oil they're going to produce each year. And what yeah. that does is it controls the price. Yeah. Um, so, you know, students of history might have heard things like uh, the oil shocks. They were caused by OPEC cutting production and the price being driven up. OPEC have been struggling lately and mm-hmm. what they've just agreed to cut production again to try and lift the price. But mm-hmm. investors were pretty disappointed with how much they agreed to cut production. And so the price of oil fell. It's interesting to uh, note in there as well that the reason they are trying to push up the price of the oil is because a lot of these countries uh, rely on oil yeah, um, exactly. As, as a main source of income for their countries. And a lot of their forward budgets are based on the fact that, you know, they, want, they need or want oil to be at a certain price. And if oil's not at their price, then, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to have, not, they don't have the money that they thought they would have. Yeah, so that's why I find this story particularly interesting. The really instructive country to look at is Saudi Arabia. Estimates are that they need oil prices to be above $60 a barrel for them to be able to balance their budget going forward. But at this stage, oil prices aren't hitting 60 At the moment, they're about $49 a barrel. Yeah. And the reason that oil prices are falling and that all these OPEC nations are really struggling is actually because of America and an innovation that America made in producing oil. Everyone would have heard of, well, a lot of people would have heard of fracking. The American oil companies uh, use that technique to extract oil domestically in America. And that supply of oil that was previously inaccessible has just done wonders for the global supply of oil and driven the price down. So definitely watch this space again. We'll see what OPEC does with oil. Hopefully it means lower petrol prices for all of us, but it's also really interesting geopolitically, given the countries that are in it, uh, what it will mean if you know their main sources of revenue are uh, continually tightened and tightened. Mm, interesting. And it's also a good side note that they talk about oil a lot in financial news because it has a big effect on share prices of companies um, across a broad spectrum. Yeah, so definitely. The more that OPEC control and try and influence the price that also has flow effects to stocks which is you know something we'll probably discuss later on yeah cool what's you got a third and final yeah now we always try and do a fun news story of the week this <laughs> this one isn't maybe as fun as you know what companies will apple buy but um <laughs> something that i thought was a little bit ironic is there's an australian company called spotless what do they do? So they, they're a big facilities manager. They're sort of in the background of a lot of businesses. You, um, you may not realize that you've interacted with them much, but chances are, if you're in Australia, you probably have interacted with a spotless, spotless run facility at some point. Yeah. Now, 
they're being sued. They're actually facing two class actions at the moment. Uh, one in relation to the numbers they gave the market in the 2014-15 financial year and the other for the guidance they gave uh, in that report. So essentially, whoever reported for Spotless then allegedly lied about what had happened the previous financial year and misled the market about what was going to happen going forward. So, so I mean, a real shock like by that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I found interesting was one of the law firms running the class action is Slater and Gordon. Yeah. Now they're suing Spotless for misleading the market. But Slater and Gordon have a troubled history of their own, and they're actually potentially facing a class action from another law firm, Morris Blackburn, <laughs> for also misleading the market. <laughs> so, oh, it's all a bit of a shambles yeah, by the sound of it. It's a bit of a mess at the moment, but Slater and Gordon right in the middle of all this class actions that they can be. So one's getting sued for lying, and then the other is getting sued for lying as well, yeah. and... It's all a bit all, all over the shop at the moment. It is, it is. Um, Slater and Gordon were the market darling for a while. <laughs> Not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. Yeah, Slater and Gordon, uh, sorry, Spotless haven't quite reached those levels, although their share prices had a pretty rocky ride uh, because of these class actions and because of these allegations that they may have misled the market. So that's definitely a stock that we would be staying away from at the moment. Yeah, very much so. Cool. Well, that's a wrap of the news. Thanks, Ren, the news guru. <laughs> so now we've got Sarah. As as I mentioned before, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that uh, you guys should be able to take away. And Ren and I had a great time interviewing her. So we hope you enjoy it. If you have any questions, hit us up. As always, um, subscribe and follow us and uh, check out our website, equitymates.com. Great. Enjoy. What got you first interested in investing, Sarah? Uh, I guess I started working in the financial advice profession from a pretty young age. So my dad was a financial advisor, kind of grew up around it and I was, I think, 18 when I started working with him. I was actually studying IT but uh, working with him in the office doing admin and then I started learning what financial advice was and got really interested in it as a career and ultimately made a career switch to that. But being around um, financial advisors and learning about investing and building wealth was really what got me interested um so probably not the same as someone who doesn't work in the profession but yeah it was from my family and from everything I was learning um through working in in his business and um through my studies and all of that as well so from that uh starting job how did you start your personal investing journey Yeah, well, I guess because I was working in the industry and learning all this stuff, I thought, well, you know, I want to start investing myself and I understood pretty quickly that it was a very important part of building wealth. You can't just save your money in cash. You have to actually invest in in other assets. And so I just started a – back then we didn't have as much access to some of the great new technology products we have now that kind of make the cost of investing a lot lower but I I think I saved up the thousand dollars or whatever it was that I needed to open an account and then started contributing a monthly amount and it was just like a diversified um, managed fund probably had like four or five managed funds in that portfolio and I just started just went from there put in whatever money I could afford every single month 
um, if my pay would increase or whatever, I'd top it up with a bit more, and that was how I started. So just a just a diversified portfolio. How, how did you know to choose something like that compared to an individual company? I mean, I've always been of the mindset that having a diversified portfolio is is probably better than putting all of your eggs in one basket, whether that comes down to property or shares. Um, and so managed funds were a great way for me to be able to access, you know, professional fund managers um, and, a, and a variety of investment assets so I could have Australian equities and international equities, um, possibly some fixed interest type products in there as well. Um, I can't remember exactly what that initial little suite of funds was, but yeah. And I mean, I was a financial advisor, so I had access to all the products and I could do my research, but basically invested in the same stuff that we were advising our clients to invest in. So a lot of our listeners are just starting out on their investing journey or still just thinking about getting in, getting started. So what were some of the hard things you found starting out your investing journey and, and what did you learn from those experiences? Well, back then, the hardest thing was the the products that were available, we needed more money to get started. So you needed like an opening balance and then minimum contribution levels. So that was kind of challenging. And then obviously choosing the investments, like I said, being a financial advisor, I I had a lot more info and access to information than my friends would have. So for me, that wasn't challenging, but I can see how it would be. The cool thing I think these days is there's so many products available where you can invest as little as actually cents into diversified ETFs and things like that. So it's really a different world now to what it was. I don't know, I'm 36 now, just turned. Um, So we're talking, I was probably 20 when I started my portfolio, so 16 years ago. But I think really, yeah, back then it was just knowing, finding the products that I could invest in that had minimum contribution amounts that I could afford to meet every month. So where has your investing journey taken you? Um, and it, what have been some notable highlights for you? I've been really fortunate to have started early and just always been contributing and building my wealth. So, And then I started looking at my superannuation and choosing those investments and things. So I've now got a self-managed super fund. So from a super perspective, that's changed. So I really got serious about making additional contributions and I probably maxed my contributions for the last five years or so. So I've built a significant balance in my superannuation um, fund that it was worth turning it into a self-managed fund where I think the, so I have that with my husband Finn and the investments that we have in there. We do have some direct shares that we've just decided and we kind of go in in our self-managed super fund because we have a much longer time frame that's actually where we do our more risky investing so our things that we really want to take a long-term view on so we'll invest in my husband's much more into actually stock picking than I I've never really been into that myself but you know he'll take a, a bet basically on some speculative stocks or whatever it might be but we've got a long time to kind of see how that plays out. We also do all of our investments in startups in the self-managed super fund. So we've invested in a bunch of startup companies as well. Same thing, you know, we don't need the liquidity. So within the super fund, we don't need to access that money. So we can just wait it out and see what happens. We've got a pretty big cash position because we want to be able to um, use that if, if an opportunity arises. And then we do have some ETFs and managed funds and and things like that with a portion of the money as well. And then 
personally, I guess, in our personal name, we've also got some investments in startups. Um, we use an insurance bond for a lot of our kind of medium-term wealth creation. And within that insurance bond, it's index funds that we use. Um, so diversified portfolio of index funds. I'm not really sure if everyone would know what insurance bonds are, but they basically have – they're a tax-paid investment vehicle, so you don't need to declare the income in your tax return. Um, but you are you are committed to a 10-year time frame. Um, But they're a pretty amazing product for kind of that medium-term wealth building because there is some significant tax savings um, there. And then we just have a diversified share portfolio as well and cash. And we have invested in property before. We're not owning any property right now. But we just do that based on the markets and what, what opportunities we think are existing. And then I guess my best investment I'm an entrepreneur, so I'd have to say my best investment has been in myself and building my own, building our own companies. Mm. We've sold a couple of businesses, and so that's you know really where I see. But it's also super risky. Like I've had failures as well. So. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, it sounds like you've invested in a lot and your investing career has spanned about 15 years now in that journey and through all those different investments uh, what's the most important thing that you've learned and that you know adds value to your investing decisions today consistency and you have to invest so all of those sort of interesting very risky investments that I was talking about like startups and speculative stocks I certainly wasn't doing that when I had a small amount of wealth. And even now, it's only with about 10% of our total wealth that we do that. So it sounds fun and sexy and really cool that you've got all these great, you know, really risky investments, but it's not like I've got most of my money and things like that. So actually, consistency and keeping it simple, like a diversified portfolio of equities is and just consistently... Um, investing in it is really what's going to get you that's what you've got to do over your whole entire lifetime and that's what's going to get you where you need to go so looking for those bets where you can get a big win you know it's exciting but you've got to realize that you might just lose all that money as well whereas if you have a diversified portfolio you're going to have market fluctuations but you're not going to lose all your money Mm. At, at what age did you take the conscious decision to start pursuing your superannuation quite vigorously to use that yeah. as a good means of investing as well? I think I would have been about 30, 29 or 30. So okay. obviously you need to get to the point where you can afford to um, make those extra contributions. Actually, I would have made extra contributions before then. I probably did it almost all of my 20s, but I'm, that might have only been an extra $1,000 a year or whatever um, you know, I could afford at the time. But from the age of about 30, I maximized. So the 25 and then $30,000 a year that we could invest, I, I maximized it because I just wanted to build that balance now. Um, the other thing 
I think with investing is the longer that you have your money invested, obviously the better off you're going to be. So I knew if I could yeah. just build a really big super fund now, I can almost stop because if what I've got in there now, if even if I don't contribute much more, I just do like the minimum from now, yeah. I've got like so much more than the average person my age, which means it can I can not worry about it too much anymore and it is going to grow massively because there's another, what, 35 or 30-something years that it, it, it can be invested. So it was kind of like for me I thought just get a real head start on that and then I can almost just let it grow and I don't mm. need to worry about trying to top it up later and now I can focus on building my more medium-term wealth. Mm. Yeah, Interesting. I, I think that's great advice for a lot of our listeners as well. We've talked about the beauty of compounding on the show before, yeah. but just starting early and getting in the market and then just letting it grow over time. From that, do you, would you say you have an overarching investment philosophy or style of investing? Yeah, definitely. Only take on as much risk as you need to. So as I said, I've got sort of 10% of the portfolio that we play with and that's our fun, like really taking these bets where we might lose all our money. All the startups we invested in might not work out. Some of the stocks we've invested in might not work out, but that's okay because 90% of our money is invested what I would call conservatively because it's in a combination of cash and bonds and, and equities like international and Australian property funds and property from time to time and it's just not taking on more risk than you that ever than you ever need to not taking on more risk than you ever need to so it sounds like the philosophy is more finding products that fit with the overall goal rather than pursuing one specific sort of asset class and going hard on that is is that is that yeah right? i think yeah definitely i think that would be more i mean i'm big into having as I keep saying, like they're diversified because equity markets could go crap and property market might go great and then vice mm. versa. The bottom can fall out of the property market and maybe your equity market might be going better. So you kind of want to be like timing the market is not what I do. That's kind of the against my philosophy, if that makes sense, like trying to pick exactly when different things are going to happen for different types of investments, really challenging. And, and I think some people are really good at it you know, trading professionals who trade equities, that's all they do all day is sit and they know and they would work within usually within a segment of equities like a an industry or a sector or whatever. Same with people who people have different property strategies, you know, people who know how to buy and renovate and sell properties. But I think there's too much of that out there that makes it look like everyone could do that and the average person probably doesn't realise just how much knowledge you need to have to be hyper-focused and basically taking bets on mm. one single type. And so for me, it's just consistency and having that diversification and just always just keeping going. And when markets are low, keep putting money in. When markets are high, you know, you put money in as well. And Does that mean in your portfolio for stocks, you're investing more in things like ETFs and listed investment companies uh, more so than direct shares? So the bulk of um, my portfolio would be in mainly in ETFs and some managed funds and things. Uh, managed funds more so in the past, not as much anymore. And only if it's, you know, usually it's something that there's not an ETF for it or whatever. Like you really think that fund manager is going to do something good with their 
theme, but ETFs are becoming a much bigger part of what we're doing. But there, we do have some direct equities that we've just purchased that we think are good. As I say, I don't actually do the stock picking because it's not my thing, but my husband does that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm a financial advisor. I know all about it, but... Your overall strategy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is a this is a question we ask every guest. Is there a must read book that you would recommend? Oh, it has to be my own book, Get Rich Slow. <laughs> yeah, Everybody should right. read that. <laughs> um, no, seriously. So in terms of wealth creation? Yeah, and just investing or sort of personal finance in general. Is there anything that you've you know read and you've really thought that it had some good lessons and it's added a lot of value to to your personal investing journey? So I think it's not like super specific on wealth management or investing, but I do believe that Think and Grow Rich is a good book. I just am a big believer in kind of the law of attraction and what you what you think and what you put your energy toward is what happens in your life and I guess that book is really about getting that right mindset and mindset is a really big part of wealth creation like honestly if you don't believe that you can build wealth and be wealthy and have an abundant life you are you won't have it so um, mindset is such a huge part of being able to achieve financial freedom so going off that Sarah you're the CEO of Wealth Enhancers, which is a financial advisory firm for Gen Y. Mm-hmm. And so that mindset piece, is that something that you try and instill with uh, your clients? And, and what sort of uh, makes Gen uh, Wealth Enhancers different to any other uh, financial advisory? Yeah, absolutely. We combined financial advice with coaching uh, because I really, really believe that the whole like accountability piece, but also, and and knowing what you why you're investing, like what are you trying to, what lifestyle are you trying to create, um, but really working on that psychology and the beliefs and how your relationship with money is because it also changes. Like one of the things that can happen, you are striving and building wealth, and then one day you get financially free. And then you have a whole other relationship with money that you have to deal with because it's like, what do I do with my life now? Because now I don't need to work. And it sounds like amazing, but it's actually a bit of a crisis. Like people go, oh, (laughs) because we're so used to striving, right? So, yeah, very much so. We work a lot around limiting beliefs and um, patterns of behavior that are going to be negative in that wealth creation phase. And then there's, you know, other things that happen on the life journey that can trigger new thoughts and feelings about money and how you, likewise, people can lose money. You know, they, they could, things can just, the bottom can fall out of something they're working on, particularly with business people. Um, and you know, there's a lot of work that we do at that, at that stage as well. So, a lot of stuff on psychology and beliefs, obviously really high quality strategic financial advice and investment advice and all of that. But I think where our real point of difference is that we focus purely on Gen Y. So mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I'm Gen Y myself and all of the team are and we just know and understand that market really well. We know and understand what we want and we are different. We're different from previous generations, the way that we view the world, the way that we view the opportunity that is our lives um, is, is pretty different from previous generations. So, um, 
Yeah, we're good at what we do, I think. (laughs) It's an interesting concept. So comparing, you know, your first work in the financial sector, working for your dad and his financial advice business compared to what you're doing at Wealth Enhancers, what are some of the unique things with working with Gen Y and um, sort of what's some of the unique advice that you can give them to achieve their financial goals? Well, I think our generation is a lot more, well, we're a lot less conservative, I guess. So previous generations really understood like, okay, we've got to like chip away at things and we've got to start building our wealth and that they'd buy their house and they'd live in that house their whole lives and so they'd slowly just pay it off. A lot of them didn't do anywhere near the amount of overseas travel that we do. And so the thing I love about Gen Y is that we know how to go out and get it. We know how to make it happen. But what we haven't learnt is delayed gratification. And when it comes to money, easy access to credit, um, it's just so easy for us to just spend, spend, spend and have amazing lifestyles and get the photos and post them on Instagram and (laughs) all of that kind of thing. And keeping up with the Joneses kind of takes on a whole new level with our generation with social media and and all of that so you know I think that's something that's really quite different is helping our generation balance having this lifestyle now and harnessing that amazing passion and that power I think that's in like we we go for things we we try we give it a shot like we're not as afraid of failure and we're, we're not as conservative and that you know we don't get held back by fear as much as what previous generations did I think they were a lot more following the rules and and going along so it's it's exciting for our generation in the way that we are but it's also really challenging when it comes to wealth creation because we're very much living the moment um, and we have an optimistic attitude that we'll just work it out as we go and we'll work it out later but when it comes to money that obviously can be pretty detrimental, especially if you're spending more than you earn, carrying around personal debt like credit cards and lo- like personal loans and those finance, everything we can finance, everything these days. You know, so there's a lot of people that are earning great money, living amazing lifestyles, but they've got this personal debt that's not great. So mm. I think that's one of the big challenges. So your book, Get Rich Slow, and I guess the guiding philosophy of uh, wealth enhancers, the get rich slow philosophy seems to be sort of quite the opposite of the Gen Y. We want it now, now, now. Um, so if if we were to walk into wealth enhancers, are there any sort of immediate actions that you try to encourage Gen Y to start sort of today that our listeners could take away to sort of help them get the idea of this get rich slow philosophy? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of what we do is automating your cash flow so that you have a set amount of money that you can spend every week on whatever you want. So you can go to the bar or you can go out and buy avocado on toast every morning for breakfast or whatever <laughs> it is that you want to spend your money on. But you've got to stick to that amount. And then the rest of your money is going toward saving and investing, debt reduction and obviously bills and, and all of that, those kind of living the more um, irregular living expenses, rent and everything or mortgage payments. So I think if you can automate your finances and give yourself a weekly amount that you're allowed to stick to so that you know everything else is really being optimised, that's pretty much the core of our – it's like it all starts there. It seems really simple but if you don't do that, then it's really hard to – put any it doesn't matter how great the financial advice and strategy is and the investment advice if you don't have the funds available to make the contributions because 
you don't have your personal spending under control, then it doesn't matter how great the advice is that we give. So I think, you know, having that weekly amount that you've got to stick to, it also means when you get a pay rise or increase or you get a bonus or something like that, you don't just absorb it into your everyday spending because you've got your set amount and you've been living on that and you should be quite fine with that. And then you can actually utilize any additional income to make larger contributions to your investments and achieve your goals sooner. So I think trying to develop like a level of comfort, comfortable lifestyle that you're happy with and then not just increase it every time you mm. get more money. I think one of the, I mean, that's what I do at the moment, but uh, when I first did that and I worked out what I thought I needed to get through my fortnight and spending, it, it's, it's, it's harder than I thought it would be because yeah. it, required, it required a lifestyle change in a sense. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't just go out and keep keep spending. But now that I've become used to it, yeah, it's it's really good knowing that my savings will stay as my savings until the next pay because I've got my spendings card. So yeah, just for our listeners as well, like it it, it requires that lifestyle change to begin with, but definitely a very good piece of advice. Mm. It does, and what we always talk about with the lifestyle changes, it's not about you know, cutting back on the things that you really love. It's about cutting out the things that you're spending money on that you don't actually value that much. Um, so mm-hmm. one of the things I wrote about in my book was I always used to go for a run around the tan in Melbourne with one of my girlfriends and we would go and get breakfast and a coffee afterwards. And we started running like nearly every day, four or five days a week, and we would get breakfast and a coffee. It ended up being like $150 a week that I was spending on this breakfast. Wow. And I was like, well, yeah. Well, it's like, I guess, $25, $30 a day, right, by the time you have a coffee and have a breakfast or have two Mm. coffees because you've been talking for ages. Um, So, (laughs) you know, what I thought about, though, was what do I really value in this experience? And it wasn't really the food. It was being in the cafe with my girlfriend and, and having a chat and having a coffee. And so we just decided not to eat breakfast and eat that when we got home. And then you immediately dropped your your bill each day from twenty twenty five dollars to like five dollars. So yeah. there's there's ways where you can just look at what am I spending and what do I value and what don't I value, and just trying to get be be more intentional and more mindful about spending money only on things that you really value, which is such a great exercise because it doesn't matter how wealthy I am, I don't want to waste money just for the sake of it. I'd rather give it to charity than do spend it on something that I don't care about. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So I think something that's quite unique about Wealth Enhancers is this coaching. And I know you touched on it before, but how does the coaching uh, help people achieve their goals, not, not just initially sort of setting them up for success, but, you know, a year down the line or five years down the line? What, what does that coaching look like? Yeah, so it's very much like a typical relationship that you would have with a coach. So for anyone who's listening, who's had, you know, a life coach or a business coach or something like that, it's very much those same kinds of conversations. Sometimes it's very focused around money, but other times it could be focused around something else. So at Wealth Enhancers, really what we're trying to do is help people be the absolute best version of themselves they can be. Um, So with their careers, if they're starting a business, with their family life, relationships, Um, all of that and money just underpins that because money really is just a facilitator of the life that we're trying to create so it's really holding people accountable and and if we see that they might be stuck on something and they haven't moved um, because we usually set 
little challenges um, and outcomes, like action items, I guess, out of every session. We have three sessions a year. And so if we get to the next session and we're like, okay, you haven't moved on that, like you said you would, what's going on? And then we'll have a coaching conversation around what the block might be, what might be holding them back. Um, with relation, with couples, sometimes you could be having a coaching session on just issues, how, how you're both feeling about money or how you're both feeling about your finances or how you're both feeling about goals or what you're working toward in your life so the conversations could be around anything but it's designed Mm. to keep you on track to keep you accountable and to keep you focused on the life that you're trying to create and also help you uh, help guide you as sometimes sometimes the goals change sometimes priorities shift and then reconciling that and working out well how does that work within the bigger picture of what what you're doing so yeah does the coaching involve helping your members learn about different asset classes as well or is it more like this is what we should be investing in and then let's just put the money there? Are you trying to encourage them to make their own investment decisions beyond you guys or is it sticking to the plans? Um, usually it would be sticking to the plan. I think the answer to that question though is coaching is probably separate from the financial advice piece. So I the see. financial advice piece is more you know, we're giving them the advice and we're explaining why we believe these investments are best for these goals. And we obviously on an ongoing basis, we're reviewing the performance of the investments and talking about their progress. And education for us is a very big part of that. So uh, particularly initially on, if we see a member really is, you know, lacking knowledge in that area, in a particular area, we'll just have a session with them purely on, I don't know, margin loans or property or shares or whatever it might need to be overall markets how they work so we we do a lot of education on an ad hoc basis as as needed like as we we just try to fill the knowledge gaps and on an ongoing basis just try to get them more and more savvy we do see ourselves as the investment professionals but at the same time we definitely want our members to be engaged and active and taking part in those decisions and understanding what they're investing in and and being a part of that journey for sure. Moving away from wealth enhancers, looking looking at your history, you've had a really successful series of you know startups and um, companies that you founded. For a, some, a lot of our listeners, you know, are very interested in entrepreneurship. It, it kind of is sort of the in vogue thing to to be these days. Um, do you have any advice for people who are trying to you know build wealth by starting their own company? Or you know, don't want to sacrifice their financial security, but still want to you know go out for themselves and start something. The first thing I would say is the first couple of years, and that could be up to five, but probably the first two years, it's going to be really, really tough financially. You may not be able to pay yourself, depending on how well your business is going. But startups are hard, really, really hard, and it depends what business you're building. If you're going out and doing consulting your cash flow might be a little better because you can bill for your time and you can probably manage without staff and overheads for a while. So in that case, probably a bit different. But if you're really starting something where it's a new idea or a new concept or a product, there's going to be time where you're not receiving income and you need to build up that customer base. It, it is going to take time. So I think don't be caught in the fantasy that you're going to start a business and have all this flexibility and time and money. That will come later but you're going to have to be willing to put in really probably five plus years of very hard work before you get anywhere near that kind of thing, unless you're an absolute anomaly and it does happen. 
um, where the business takes off, but that's 0.0001%. I mean, that wasn't my journey. I worked my butt off for definitely the first five years, you know, 12 hour plus days all the time, working on the weekends, not much of a social life. And I, I've always traveled a lot, but I always work when I'm away. Um, so not having a whole, like not, not, not having an actual break for a long time. So I think it's just be aware, but I'm a big believer that the most wealth is created through business because once you, if you are prepared to work hard and you do put in the, the effort and you have a good product or service and, you know, you can manage it well and everything and you can build something that's scalable and saleable, it's, it's a pretty great way to create a lot of wealth for you, for you. But you've got to be sensible and you've got to be sensible along the journey with your money. Um, if you do have a business that is producing cash flow, well, invest it. Don't get carried away spending it, which is what a lot of people do because they think, well, I've got this great business and I'll be able to sell it one day so I'm just going to have a good lifestyle. You never know when the bottom could fall out of whatever it is that you're doing. The government could change regulations. The market could shift. Um, a new, new product comes in and takes over what you're doing. Like I've seen it over and over again where you've got a business that was worth $10 million that now isn't worth anything literally overnight. So you can never bank on that. As entrepreneurs, we always know that's what we're aiming for. Um, but build your wealth personally at the same time so that you know, you're getting value along the journey as well as hopefully that big kicker at the end. For the, you know, our listeners who are just starting out, is there an asset class that you particularly think or safe, for example, I'm thinking like margin loans, that sort of stuff to particularly stay away from or that you would suggest being the easiest to start getting involved in on their sort of journey towards financial freedom? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't go for a margin loan straight up. <laughs> um, but And likewise, you know, I think a lot of Australians' first choice is property and really I just think that's challenging as well because essentially you're just borrowing a lot of money and backing one asset. So don't get me wrong, I, I've invested in property before and I 100% believe that it's a big part of the overall strategy. But I would suggest, you know, ETFs, uh, and through these products where you can put in very small amounts of money. So I think that's really the best place to get started because you've got a diversified portfolio, you've got low fees, you don't need to borrow money and be in debt, you can contribute what you can afford and you can just get yourself mm. familiar with investing because obviously investing in anything other than cash does have come with market fluctuations. So you're going to see the balances going up and down. But yeah, that's that's what I would suggest. I think property is amazing, but part of the problem when people get too focused on it and they buy that first property, all of their surplus cash is now stuck going into trying to pay that property off. And the chance of them actually then one day starting a share portfolio is really reduced because they're just not going to get started in investing because they're going to be totally focused on just paying off this property and making ends meet because most of the time people are property is so expensive in Australia people are really overextending themselves to to do it so I'm a big fan of get a really good savings habit with cash going once you get a nice cash position start getting into shares through ETFs or something like that once you build that up to a substantial position then start looking at property that's fantastic advice I think um that's definitely the message that we're trying to send to the guys listening who are just starting out as well. Low risk, but just keep being consistent. It's hard because our great Australian dream is to get the property and 
there's a lot of pressure from previous generations that really success is owning your own home. But I think, mm. you know, hopefully I think our generation can think a bit bigger than that. And having a couple of million dollars in wealth that's in, not necessarily invested in property is not a bad thing. <laughs> like that's still mm. successful. It doesn't matter if, but as I said, I, I still believe in property for sure. It's just the way that the order of which you do it and not overextending yourself. Well, Sarah, I think that'll be a wrap for us. Um, We've definitely got some great pieces of advice from you and delved into Wealth Enhancers. And if any of our listeners want to check it out, it's wealthenhancers.community. Sounds like a very interesting and also a very motivating community to be part of as well. So I'd just like to thank you for coming on the show and I really appreciate your time. And yeah, all the best for Wealth Enhancers. Thank you so much. We do offer a free session for people to just get a little bit more of a feel for how we might be able to help them. And um, that's a really valuable session, whether you whether you become a member or not, you'll get some good tips and tricks and action items out of that session. So yeah, feel free for anyone to book in for that. Awesome. Thanks very much. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. 